This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. Welcome to the Science Podcast for May 1st, 2015. I'm Suzanne Bard, filling in for Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, we have David Grimm up first with some online news stories, and then we hear from Jim Sankirico about sustainable seafood from developing countries. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, advancing science, engineering, and innovation throughout the world for the benefit of all people. AAAS, the Science Society. Now we have David Grimm, editor for our daily news site. He's here to talk about some recent online stories. I'm Suzanne Bard. Remote camera traps have opened up a whole new window into the lives of animals, from observing chimpanzee tool use to documenting endangered species. Sometimes the cameras reveal interesting details about predators and prey. What was a golden eagle caught doing in Pennsylvania, Dave? <laughs> well, uh, Suzanne, this happened in March of last year, and some scientists were looking for golden eagles. They actually set up what they call these roadkill sites, where they pile a lot of carcasses that they hope will attract eagles so they can sort of observe them in their natural habitat. And they had these motion sensor cameras set up to take pictures of these eagles. And what they found when they were going through some of their footage was that one of the eagles that they had been keeping an eye on actually had these barbs sticking out of its face. And you actually can see a picture of that on the site. And to their knowledge, it was the first reported incident of some sort of face-off that must have happened between a porcupine and an eagle. Wouldn't most avian predators want to avoid porcupines? You would think so. What's happening is that they're both scavengers, and so you might have a situation, even though it seems like these two animals wouldn't really interact very much, where they might be fighting over food, and in this site, potentially roadkill. And what was interesting is the researchers actually found out that these types of interactions were more common than they thought when they went through and did a literature search. They were searching for things like porcupine and bird and eagle and things like that. They found 17 studies over the last 100 years that actually mentioned or actually had pictures of encounters, not just with porcupines and golden eagles, but porcupines and other birds like bald eagles, peregrine falcons, and even a few great horned owls. What were some of the potential consequences of taking on a porcupine if you're a bird? Well, actually, they fear the consequences aren't that great because the idea is that these barbs can cause infections. And in fact, some of the studies they saw, a lot of the birds had died or they didn't know what happened to them. They actually don't even know what happened to the bird that they had caught a picture of. They assume that it died. Although one expert that we talked to for the story actually had an encounter with a porcupine himself and actually had a quill burrow into his skin, come out a few days later, and the scientist was no worse for the wear. 
there. So he thinks that there may be possibly some sort of antibiotic coating on these quills, which actually kind of makes sense because you would imagine porcupines must get stuck with their own quills every once in a while. And if their own quills were killing them, that probably wouldn't be great from an evolutionary standpoint. So this scientist thinks that getting hit with these quills may not always be as lethal as the team thinks it is. Interesting. Well, it sounds like a dangerous game to play. (laughs) For our next story, 4,200 years ago, dodos and giant tortoises started to die by the droves on the island of Mauritius in the Indian Ocean, and they left well-preserved fossils in a lake bed. Now, scientists are piecing together the factors responsible for the massive die-offs. What do they think happened, Dave? Well, they looked at a place on this island. This is a very pristine island that's about 900 kilometers off the east coast of Madagascar. And the scientists were interested in a particular area of the island known as Mar Osange, which once held a shallow lake that was a really important source of fresh water for dodos, for giant tortoises, for other animals that lived on the island. Today, it's just a grassy swamp. And as you noted, Suzanne, there's been a lot of fossils found in this area. In fact, the team estimates there may be hundreds of thousands of fossils in and around the shallow lake. So they know that there was some huge die-off that happened in the past. And the big mystery is what killed all of these animals? And what they did was they actually took some sediment cores from around the lake area. And this gives you clues to what's happened in the past. These cores preserve things like pollens and microbes. And the researchers already knew that about 4,200 years ago, there was a decline in the monsoon activity in this part of the world, and that caused this 50-year mega drought. And what the cores revealed is that during the same time period, this lake went from being a really important source of fresh water to a muddy, salty swamp. So they ran out of water to drink? Well, that was part of the problem. And the other part of the problem was that sanitation suddenly became a big issue because you had a lot of these animals living and drinking around the lake, and they were also excreting a lot around the lake. And when you have the water drying up, becoming a lot more salty, you have a lot of excrement being added to the water, it probably became, in the words of one researcher, a giant toilet. (laughs) And that wasn't just bad for the animals in itself, but actually these feces-flooded waters encouraged the growth of a lot of bad single-celled organisms, which may have caused poisonous algal bloom. So you had this really deadly cocktail of, first of all, this loss of fresh water, this giant cesspool forming that these animals really depended on. And the researchers think that really was what caused a massive die-off of a lot of these animals. Well, that does not sound healthy. (laughs) And it's sad that even though the populations came back when the mega drought ended, the dodos and giant tortoises were driven to extinction after the Dutch arrived 3,800 years later. Right. So these animals were really only temporarily spared for about another 3,800 years before the Dutch arrived in the 1600s and hunted the dodo and the giant tortoise to extinction. In our final story today, lightning is a phenomenon that has puzzled researchers for a long time. But now scientists think they may have a new way of understanding it. Tell me about it, Dave. Well, you know, it's funny, Suzanne, because obviously (laughs) lightning is everywhere, and yet we really don't know a whole lot about what causes it. And there's just a lot of mysteries surrounding lightning. And the problem is that it's hard to measure electric fields inside of thunderstorms. You can send balloons in there or small rockets, but that actually can disrupt the electric field. So you can actually sort of muddle your experiment. And so researchers have really been looking for another way to analyze these storms. 
And now they think they've found something. They've hitched on this idea of using cosmic rays, which are these particles that fall onto Earth from space, to probe the mysteries of lightning. Huh, okay. So how do they go about that? <laughs> well, the way it works is when cosmic rays smash into molecules in our atmosphere, the collisions create these showers of subatomic particles that includes electrons, positrons, and other electrically charged particles. And as these particles travel towards the ground, their trajectories are bent by Earth's magnetic field, causing them to emit radio waves. So what these scientists want to try to do is monitor these patterns of radio waves and see how they change during a lightning storm. So did they see any changes? Yeah, they did. They saw that when one of these cosmic ray showers passed through a thunderstorm, the team saw an atypical pattern of radio waves. And that was due to the strong electric fields in the storm actually wrenching the charged particles around and changing the radio wave's polarization or the orientation of their electromagnetic wiggles. Uh, and so what the researchers are concluding is that they can actually use cosmic rays if they probe these disruptions that happen when cosmic rays are around, when they're looking at these thunderstorms, they may actually be able to detect differences in electric fields, detect differences in patterns in radio waves that could potentially help resolve some of these enigmas that we have about lightning. Interesting. And could this help at all in predicting lightning strikes or even getting people away from lightning before it happens? Well, that's the hope. You know, the more that we understand about lightning, maybe the better we will be able to predict it and get people out of harm's way. And what else is on the site this week, Dave? Well, Suzanne, we've got a story about new insights into an unusual aging disorder. Also a story about zombie bacteria. For Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got a story about controversy that's growing over an embryo gene editing paper. Also a story about what's causing the Midwest region in the United States to have earthquakes that are starting to rival those of California. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Suzanne. David Grimm is the editor for our daily online news site. I'm Suzanne Bard. You can check out the latest news in the policy blog Science Insider at news.sciencemag.org. Next, consumers are often told to eat more fish for its health benefits, but at the same time, they're faced with the reality of dwindling fish populations worldwide. Jim Sankirico discusses the challenges of meeting the growing demand for sustainable seafood in this week's science. Jim, we hear about the problem of overfishing and dwindling fish stocks globally, but how bad is this problem? The most recent data we have is from 2012 that says about 28% of the stocks are overfished. That is, if we continue to maintain them at those levels, it's sort of biologically unsustainable. And that's down from a peak in 2008 that was up at about 35% of the fish stocks around the world. Now, when we hear these statistics, there's a couple of sort of caveats to keep in mind. One is this is only reporting on stocks where we have enough data to do assessments to understand whether or not they are overfished. The other thing to keep in mind is that there's a fair amount of variation across the globe. For example, in the U.S., in the last 10 years, we've done a great job of reducing the number of overfish stocks and also trying to eliminate overfishing. Having said that, there's still some iconic species like the cod off of New England that we're still having to cut back catches because the dock is not rebuilding. In other places like Southeast Asia or Indo-Pacific region more broadly, there's a lot of concern that many of those stocks are overfished. And so it is something that is very worthwhile to think about in terms of how do we address 
these issues on a global scale, but then what are the local conditions and contexts that we need to think about when we go to implement different types of interventions to try to improve the sustainability of the fisheries. And one way to address that is with this idea of sustainable seafood. How do you define sustainable seafood, Jim? That is a great question, and it sounds very simple. It should have a very simple answer for you, but unfortunately there's not. And to understand why, I think it makes sense to take a step back and think about the evolution of this concept in fisheries. So if you went back 20 years ago and you asked someone who works in fisheries or fishery management what makes something sustainable, their definition of that would focus solely on the biology of the stock. That is, if we had the stock at a state where it was close to its maximum sustainable yield, that's the most we can catch in a given year without changing the stock size, the fishery manager would say our stock is sustainable. Well, we realized over the last 20 years that even though you could have stocks that were close to that threshold, it could very well be that the economic side of this equation, that is what the fishermen's return were from fishing and what society was getting from these resources, could still be in essence depleted because there could be competition, the tragedy of the commons could be at work. And so there was this expansion of thinking about sustainability, not just across the biological, what happens in a particular fish stock, but also across what happens to the fishing industry and the economics associated with that. And then more recently, the idea has developed that fisheries are just one component that are embedded into these larger, what we call now social ecological systems, where now we want to think about not just biology and the economics, but also about the social cultural aspects associated with fishing. And so that's becoming an important component also to consider when you think about what is sustainable. So human well-being, food security, labor practices, things like that. And so where we are today is that when we think about this concept of sustainability, we're thinking about how do we make trade-offs across all these dimensions, and we end up relying on sort of third-party certifiers, operations like the Marine Stewardship Council, who go out and certify whether or not a fishery meets certain types of criteria. And even within these organizations that are certifying sustainable seafood, like the MSC or another popular one is the fish card that Monterey Bay Aquarium does, there's not agreement among those organizations about what exactly is sustainable because some organizations might put more weight on some dimensions of the sustainability than other dimensions. And so there are these trade-offs that occur. But in general, the idea is that you're thinking about the ecology, the biology, the economics, and the social aspects of fisheries and fisheries management. Okay, and who eats sustainable seafood, and is the demand for it growing? Yes, the demand is growing for sustainable seafood. I think it's important to put the whole idea of fish consumption in context. First of all, fish is one of the most traded commodities worldwide, and that trend in trade is going up over time. There's around 200 countries that are currently exporting fish and seafood products Fish consumption per capita is more than doubled since 1960, and that trend seems to be going up. Most of that consumption is occurring in developing countries, but the gap between developed and developing countries is going down over time. And then to understand the market for certified sustainable seafood, it's important to know that the three largest importers of seafood right now are the European Union, United States, and Japan. And within the European Union and within the countries, U.S. and Japan, Some of the major retailers and restaurant chains have made commitments to source their seafood, wild-caught and farm-raised, from sustainable sources. And examples of retailers 
are, you know, Walmart was a leader in this effort, sort of one of the first movers, McDonald's, Sansbury, which is a supermarket chain in England, Whole Foods, Safeway are examples. And so we have more and more retailers making these commitments to source all their seafood from sustainable sources. Some of them, their commitments are in 2015. That, with a growing consumption of fish throughout the world, is sort of creating potentially a gap between the demand that's out there for sustainable seafood and the supply that exists. Right. I mean, I love my wild-caught Alaskan salmon, but I realize it's not very realistic to have everyone get their fish from places like Alaska, right? No, that's right. You know, it would be great if we could all get our fish from Alaska. And thinking about the North Pacific, it is one of the most productive and well-managed ecosystems in the world. It does have very familiar sort of menu items like salmon and crabs, pollock and halibut are species that we all know and that come from that area. But unfortunately, even that area, which is so productive, does not yield enough seafood for just consumption within the United States. In the U.S., for example, we have what people call a seafood deficit, and we are importing about 60% of our seafood each year. And most of that fish that we are importing is, in fact, coming from the Indo-Pacific region of the world. Interesting. So to get sustainable seafood, where do retailers turn? The retailers are sort of working with groups out there that are certifying stocks. And by far, the largest group is the Marine Stewardship Council. Currently, they have about 220 fish stocks that are certified. But only about 7% of the certified fisheries by the MSC are actually from developing countries. And so with all these declarations on sourcing sustainable seafood that the major retailers are making, currently the demand is outstripping supply. And to address this gap, retailers, environmental NGOs, and actors throughout the supply chain have sort of developed policy statements on their sustainable seafood that are much broader than just MSC fisheries. And what are some of the challenges faced by developing countries in meeting that demand for truly sustainable seafood and working within those policies? The challenges that developing countries face are numerous. They have sort of weak or non-existent harvest or access rights. That is, if you did, for example, create a different policy within the fishery, it's not clear how you could enforce that policy, like could you create some exclusion, not allow certain fishermen in certain areas. Typically, they have weak governance arrangements that there's just not a lot of political will to support fishery management and to put the resources into monitoring them and enforcing. In many cases, there's just very little data available to really assess the status of the fishery to know what, in fact, actually could be used. And then finally, In a lot of these developing countries, there's lots of incentives to carry out what's called illegal, unreported, and unregulated fishing. And that's especially the case in these small-scale fisheries in nearshore waters. The result is that these fisheries in developing countries fail to meet the standards necessary for MSC certification or other third-party certifications. And they also sort of lack the financial and human resources necessary to make the changes to get MSC certified. And so fishery improvement projects or FIPS are a tool that are intended to get these fisheries on a path to sustainability by creating incentives for all the parties up and down the international supply chain to make reforms to fishery management and to sort of improve conditions in the water. Okay, so tell me more about these fishery improvement projects and how you assess their success. Sure. So these fishery improvement projects are designed to be sort of a partnership between buyers, retailers, suppliers, fishermen that voluntarily come together to make changes in purchasing and the production or the catch of fish 
to reduce problems such as illegal fishing, bycatch, improve data availability and monitoring. Something we found in our research is that there's not one model out there or one real definition of what is and what is not a FIP. Some of them could cover many different species. Some are just one particular species or one sector within a fishery. So, for example, a hook and line component of a tuna fishery in the Indo-Pacific could be under a FIP. There's about 130 fisheries that are in FIPs that we know of, and there are estimates out there that we're going to need up to 400 to meet the growing demand for sustainable seafood in the future. So thinking about how do we assess FIPs that are currently going on, what can we learn from them? We used in our paper the model put forth by the Sustainable Fisheries Partnership, or SFP, and they were actually set up to engage the supply chain to make durable reforms to fishery management and conservation in the water, and for fisheries that could not or would not necessarily make MSC certification at the current time. And so the idea was originally that FIPS were going to be this pathway to MSC certification. And along that pathway, the SFP has laid out six stages. And so basically, stage two is where the stakeholders have gotten together, they have formed this FIP, and they're provided access to markets in the developed country at different retailers throughout the developed world and being marketed as sustainable seafoods. That occurs at stage two. And it's not until stage four or five where fishery management reforms and improvements in the water, so changes in the stock status or reductions in bycatch, are slated to occur. So while the original tent was this idea of moving these fisheries through to stage six where certification would be initiated and they'd have the data necessary to go forward, what we're finding is that at least in the developing country fisheries where we focused our effort, we found that two-thirds of the fisheries are sort of stagnating in stage two. That is, they get market access, but they're not moving on to stages where the changes and reforms occur. And we also find that when comparing developing countries and developed countries, the ones in the developing countries are moving slower through the system than the ones in the developed countries, which is not necessarily surprising because they're often starting at points where the fishery management systems are much more unorganized. And so they're starting from a point that's further away from sustainability. So this all ties back to, you know, what is your measure of success? If your measure of success is going back to yield to the end an MSC certification? Well, there are some examples in the developed world where some cod fisheries in the Northwest Atlantic went through a FIP and became MSC certified. But I think that idea of success is not necessarily where we are today with the FIP model. It's more, can we move some of these fisheries through to stage four and five, where we actually are beginning to see improvements in fishery management, data collection, the reduction in illegal fishing, etc. And on that measure currently, it seems to be from what we found in the data that's available that we're not seeing that progress in these developing country fisheries. Now, that's not to say that some aren't progressing through the system. Some are. For example, we did find a mahi-mahi fishery in Ecuador that has implemented policies to reduce sea turtle bycatch. So here's a case where the SIP was formed and these are market-driven. They're led by the market players, the retailers looking for supply. They were looking for mahi-mahi. They got the stakeholders in the supply chain together. They formed this FIP, and they were able to implement reduction measures for sea turtle bycatch. So that's a success. 
but it's not yet permeating through all the sets and all the different places where they're being tried currently. And are there other factors that need to be considered to make fishery improvement projects more successful? So in our research, while we think FIPS is definitely a powerful tool to have in the toolbox, we do think there's a couple things that could be done to try to improve the likelihood that it's successful in the future. You know, one of the things we found, for example, in the developing country fisheries where there are currently FIPS, almost all of these fisheries are characterized as having very weak fisheries management and very weak levels of enforcement. And so in this situation, it is possible that a FIP could, for example, create incentives to increase the catches because now I've got market access. No one is necessarily regulating how much catch can come out of this particular fishery. And so one of the recommendations we make to address that issue is the consideration of thinking about how to define the rights to access and harvest better in these places where they're very poorly defined. So setting up local cooperatives or allocations of areas to local communities or to different fishing sectors where they have some way of excluding others and then also better managing them, the fisheries within those given areas. But without some better defined access rights, there's really not going to be a guarantee that FIPS are going to be able to control those incentives to catch more fish. We also think that there needs to be much more strict adherence by the retailers to this idea of this conditionality of market access on continued improvements. That is, there needs to be some sort of transparent monitoring going on by some independent third party that is making sure that these fisheries are moving through these stages in a timely manner. And if they're not, their market access could be pulled from them. Without stronger commitments on moving these FIPS through the system, it's not clear whether or not FIPS will be able to give assurances to the consumer that, in fact, what they are consuming is sustainable seafood. Thanks so much for speaking with me, Jim. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity, and I really appreciate having this chance to talk to your listeners. Jim Sankirico and his colleagues write about sustainable seafood in developing countries this week in science. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at AAAS.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other places on the web or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Suzanne Bard. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.